Welcome to the Christ and Classics podcast, where we consider the classics in light of the Christ. I'm Colton Moore, and this week, or this episode, we've got a special guest for you. His name is... Ben House. Ben House is a former humanities teacher at Veritas Academy in Texarkana, Arkansas, and uh, he's also an author of a book entitled Pudic Wars and Culture Wars... Oh, essays. Christian essays on history and teaching. Christian essays on history and teaching. He's also uh, a recent uh, contributor to the book, The Devil's Diet. What's the subtitle? Don't recall the subtitle, but it deals with the seven deadly sins. Yes. Yep. And you you did the chapter on, on lust. He's also got um, several things. If you just search Ben House online, classical Christian education, you'll find several resources. He's written for uh, a few different uh, classical Christian um, uh, uh, websites. You, I think I, th- I think I found actually yesterday. You've got a lecture uh, that you did uh, at the ACCS conference, and if I wanted to, I could have paid three dollars to download the the MP3 file. Um, you've got you've got an article that was really helpful on reform reformation dot org. Is that right? I'm not sure where they all are. <laughs> they're they're around. I hope they're out there a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, he's he's also. Uh, He's been teaching for 40-plus 40 40 years. 40-plus years. Um, and he is taught through Homer's Iliad to high school students... Six, Maybe six times. Six, seven times? Yes. Right. I, I just know that whenever I'm teaching the Iliad with my own students, uh, I, I come to Ben across the hall for, for questions, and uh, he usually has answers, and he hasn't been reading the book uh, for uh, for some time, so I'm really excited to have him. We'll be discussing. I think at least at least this is my favorite book of well, chapter, well book 24. I think is my favorite book of the Iliad, but this may be my my next favorite chapter book of um, of the Iliad. So um, let's just get started. I'll give a brief little summary, and then we'll I'll ask okay. a question, and Ben will give us all the answers. So at the beginning of book six. The Greeks are, are gaining, uh, the Greeks have gained the upper hand and they've driven the Trojans off the beach and, and closer to Troy. Menelaus uh, nearly accepted a ransom for, a, for the Trojan, addresses his life, and Agamemnon convinces him uh, to kill him uh, instead. Instead of having mercy, he, um, he kills him, which is, I think, is going to foreshadow what, what Diomedes and Odysseus do to this lone. Um, Marauder in the night in a, in a, in a few chapters uh, ahead when he begs for life, begs for mercy, but they don't they don't give it to him. Um, seeing the Trojans weakening, old man Nestor uh, convinces the Greeks to forsake the plunder on the battlefield and to keep driving the tr- tr- Trojans further back. Don't don't ransack the bodies. Keep pushing them back. The Trojans anticipate a downfall, and the soothsayer the soothsayer Helenus, who's the son of Priam and I'm assuming the, also the brother of Hector and, and Paris urges Hector to fly back to the city with a task to ask his mother, Hecuba, to pray to Athena, offering her best robe to the goddess, which is kind of unfortunate for them because we know that Athena is on the side of, of the Greeks, and so we can already kind of uh, assume how she's going to respond to, to Hector's mother's prayer. Not really positively. Hector does this and then visits his brother Paris, relieving himself from the battle and claiming that he cannot battle because he is stricken with grief. Paris suits up for the battle only after both Hector and his uh, stolen bride, well, 
Should, should we call Helen Paris's bride? Even though yes, she she refers to she refers to uh, Hector as being her brother, her brother-in-law. Yeah, it, but also Menelaus at times to her husband. Yes, so it's like she's got two two husbands here, one, like her illegitimate husband. Anyway, so after Hector and Helen scorn him, he he suits up for battle and uh, feeling kind of the weight of his cowardice. Uh, then, but, but, but right before Hector returns to battle, we have this beautiful scene where he briefly visits his wife, Andromache, who's nursing uh, their son, help me out, Ben, the pronunciation, the, uh, his, uh, his son, Astyniax? Astyniax is what I call him. Astyniax, yeah. Andromache begs Hector to remain with her in the city, avoiding making her a widow and their son an orphan, but he insists that he must go back for the sake of his, sake of his countrymen. Um, because he, he, he. Uh, if my memory serves me right, he's he basically says, if I if I don't go, the the Greeks will overrun us anyway, more or less. So I've, I've got to go out and lead my people into battle. He kisses his son, who's frightened in this in this famous scene by Hector's helmet. Hector removes it with a smile on his face and laughs with joy. Picks up his baby, while Andromache weeps the whole time, and uh, he kisses them and departs. With Andromache still weeping for her for her husband because she knows what's likely going to happen to him, Hector meets Paris on his way out of the city, and the two princes of Troy ride back into battle. And I I think what we want to talk mainly about in this in this episode is Hector. Um, broad question, nothing super specific right now. Like like what? Why is Hector? Well, I guess we could approach it from a couple different ways, Ben. We could we could ask, why might Homer um, portray Hector in this light, in this part of the story? Or we could ask, what makes Hector so attractive in this part of the story? And and um, how does this influence our uh, view or understanding of, of Hector thus far in the Iliad? Well, I think one thing that's really surprising about uh, Homer is that he has a side that he takes. It's very obvious that he is on the side of the Achaeans, but he does not portray this as uh, totally as good guys against bad guys because Hector is every bit as heroic and in some ways more admirable than, uh, than anyone on the other side. So he really uh, he portrays this guy as... He himself is a worthy hero, and you could just imagine that uh, if, uh, if if Homer had wished to, he could uh, rewrite the whole book with making it uh, centered around the great Hector. Mm. But in in some ways, Hector is always just like everyone else. He's he's puffed up and uh, held up and uh, presented in such a way as like this guy is really amazing, unless you compare him to Achilles, who is greater. <clears throat> Yeah, and and even then, like by <clears throat> by what standard is he greater than Achilles? Because when I think of Achilles, I think of a uh, obviously a um, incredible warrior able to defeat just about every enemy uh, at hand. Yet he he doesn't seem to have the self control to control his own anger that y- you sense from Hector. Well, you don't have the uh, the human compassion in uh, in Achilles until you get down to the end. Mm. 
And it's almost as though that emotion doesn't even emerge in him until he gets to that point. Uh, he's, uh, you know, we would describe him uh, as a personality type of being narcissistic. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, I think there are good reasons for that. But we see that, uh, that Hector is a man who is deeply in love with his wife, with his child, uh, but he's also he's also uh, in love with uh, with his uh, with his cause, with the country. It's kind of like that English poet who says uh, uh, to to this woman that he's leaving for war, uh, where he says, I, "I I love you, and I would stay here if I didn't love honor more." Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that taps into. Um, the role of glory and honor in in this poem, which seems to be the driving force behind perhaps everything, even for the gods, it seems. I think it was um, in book five in the last episode or book four, even with, with Zeus. Hera kind of puts Zeus in a catch-22, basically saying... Well, if, if, you, if you end the war now and you give the Greeks their victory over Troy without destroying Troy, the gods will never praise you. And he's like, oh, well, well you're right. I better keep, keep on track with what I've already determined to do. And glory and honor uh, drive these heroes forth, uh, Achilles especially. And even, um, even Hector in, in this scene his wife pleading for him to remain back home with her and her son. But he choosing for the sake of honor and um, his men and country to go back to the, to the battlefield. I mean, one could, could ask, what should he have done? Did he do the right thing in leaving his, his, his wife and children? Well, I think some of it has to do with this whole Greek idea of glory, which is, uh, which was in effect eternal life for them. Uh, was, Achilles is going to make the statement, I believe it's in the uh, Odyssey, where uh, whenever he's visited by uh, Odysseus, that uh, you know he would he would rather be a uh, poor farmer uh, than to uh, be where he is uh, at that point in the underworld, uh, but. In this world, uh, it's that glory that is everything. And it's far more than just whenever we as Americans speak of honoring our heroes or respecting those who have been in the military. Glory was the only means of an eternal life. Uh, and it's really not life. It's just that, uh, as Helen says later, they will sing songs about you. Mm. You know, which, of course, is interesting because that's the same thing that... Uh, that uh, uh, Sam brings up to Frodo in Lord of the Rings is that someday oh. they'll be singing songs about us. So it's like glory is becoming a part of this epic story and being sung about in ages to come. Oh, interesting. I've never, I've never made that connection with, with Frodo and Sam. I've always thought that moment when they're, they're, they're just about at the end and they're... It, in their minds, they're about to die. They have no water, no food, uh, and they don't think they can make it. And then there's that, just that endearing moment with, with, with Sam and Frodo, just thinking about, well, someday, someday, 
they'll, 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 they'll sing and speak of us. But I never made that connection with, with this. It's, it's, sim- it's, it's just like Achilles too. Achilles chooses to uh, fight in the Trojan War rather than go back home to um, Pythia or Phrygia? Pythia? Where, where, his, where his father Peleus is and to live a long, um, rich, wealthy, uh, simple life. But nobody's going to remember you. He chooses the other option, which is to die a short life at the Battle of Troy, but the the plebs will praise you for ages and ages to come. And you have that ringing in your ears when you get to the Odyssey and you see him in the house of death and it's just this miserable scene where he hates it. It's awful. And so much, at least from a Christian perspective, it's like, well, so much for all that glory, right? Um. Yeah. So in uh, you've got the Lattimore translation. I'm I'm working with with Fagels right here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I like well I, I I like Fagels. It's the only translation I've I've read. It's like my third fourth time through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you have you read the Fagels? I'm no not uh, not all of it. Have you just read the Lattimore? Yes. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> um. So in mine, it's, it's line 521. I don't know if the lines are, are similar. But Hector's talking to his wife, Andromache, and, it, and Homer writes, And tall Hector nodded, his helmet flashing. That, that famous epithet there. Like, whenever I whenever I read that epithet, uh, I, I, I literally, in my mind, picture Hector and just like the glint of the sun beaming off of off of his helmet where like there's a, a single point on his helmet where no man can look at because it's so bright. His helmet flashing. He says, all this weighs on my mind too, dear woman. But I would die of shame to face the men of Troy and the Trojan women trailing in their longs robe if I would shrink from the battle now and be called a coward. Ah, so his wife has just urged him, sweetie, stay, stay. You're going to leave me a widow and our child an orphan if you don't. And he chooses not because to be considered a coward for the rest of your life and in the ages to come is worse for him than to leave his wife a widow and his and his son and an orphan and this is why we don't like Paris so much because he is just that a coward well at this very moment Paris is uh, in there shining his armor <laughs> and uh, you know he's sitting there with, with Helen I think and something that just really struck me again today, reading back over this, is this part where before the the passage you got to, is where Andromache is talking about what she had been through. And it's terrifying in a way because Achilles had mm. killed her father. Achilles had killed her brothers. And so uh, Hector comes along. He is the savior figure in her life. Uh, he he takes this woman who has already been uh, vic- you know the victim of uh, this horrible war, and uh, you know that you know he takes her as as wife, and she makes this statement to him that uh, uh, Hector, uh, thus you are father to me and my honored mother. You are my brother, and you it is uh, who are my young husband. Uh, so it's like this is her entire world, and you just see this what uh you know we want to think of as like this beautiful family that you want them to live happily ever after and he for hector foresees that the day is going to come when she's going to be uh hauled off uh, 
as part of the ransom of war and become another man's wife. And even though he uh, prays for the success of Astanax, his son, uh, you know, we find out later that uh, Astanax is thrown off the wall. There's mm. no, you're not going to let the heir uh, of, uh, of Hector live. So it's just a, it's a looming tragedy there. And it's just in- incredibly painful, incredibly beautiful. Uh, it gives you just all kinds of senses of, uh, of what might have been. And in contrast to that, in the perfect family, then you have uh, you have uh, uh, Paris, who is in there, you know, shirking battle, and his brother is, uh, you know, approaches him and uh, just gives him a really strong mm. what for, and uh, you know, even though he he does consent, okay, I'll run back out here and and fight some. He's just atrocious, and you wonder at times, like. Why does Hector do this when uh, he so despises this brother? But you see, he's really a man that's, that's torn between all of these different things. His wife calling him to do one thing, his brother uh, who is provoking him to want to do something totally different, and then this whole sense of duty that he has. And then overarching that, this thing that comes back to haunt even Zeus, uh, which is fate. Mm. Like, Zeus, you know, the will of Zeus was accomplished... But there are parts of this where it's like Zeus just has to uh, wring his hands like it's not, I, I can't control what's going to happen here. Yeah, yeah, it's this. <clears throat> this whole idea of, of, of duty that's driving Hector <clears throat> forward there is some biblical precedent here. Whenever I, whenever I was thinking through um, this this passage, taking notes on this, some a uh, couple of couple of weeks ago, I I wrote down in my notes, Hector here is much like Uriah in Second Samuel, where he's exactly where he needs to be. He, he he's he's with his men on the battlefield. He come, King David brings him back home to try to seduce him back to his wife to to cover up the. The illegitimate child that he's about to have with 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 um, Bathsheba, but Uriah says no, no, far be it from me. My duty is right now to my to my to, to my people, my soldiers, and uh, Paris is kind of like David in in, in this regard, and, and Uriah is much like Hector here, and so I I think there is this idea of um, when a man's called to war, that's where he should be. Um, like there, are, I've got I've got vague memories of, of Old Testament passages. I can't tell you where specifically, but I but where where um uh, someone is tempted to like fast, or, or sorry, some, someone is tempted to to, to 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 comfort himself with his wife, uh, but he refuses because he's it's not the it's not the right time to do right. that. It's not the appropriate time to do that. Right now, it's time to fast and to abstain from food. Um, and Hector. We see that right now. Like I can't stay with you, Andromache. I can't stay with you, my son, because my duty right now is to um, to my people, and which includes you. Uh, and I think that's that's noble and and to be and to be admired. Also, is this whole scene with his with his son as he as he holds him up. You you. you um, I don't know who painted it, but you've seen it in my classroom. I've got this beautiful painting. 
it's a, it's a printout. I printed it in, in our, I copied it off the internet, but it's beautiful of, of this picture of, of Hector with his, with his bronze armor and his muscular uh, thighs and, and muscular biceps with his, with his helmet, I think is on the ground. And he's just this ideal picture of a warrior and his wife has got her, I think his wife looks weeping or, or sorry, uh, his wife looks <clears throat> really sad, but like off to the side, there's a, there's, there's a, a servant woman who's got her hands, got her face and her palms weeping. And it's just this picture of strong warrior with a tender wife and a beautiful young baby. And it's, he's not too high to, to mingle with, with the lowly of, 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 of his family. He's a, he's a family man. And that is, um, honorable. And, um, I think that's one reason, one, perhaps the main reason I think why, well, maybe not the main, maybe one, one big reason why Homer, um, inserts this whole scene into this section of the epic to juxtapose Hector with his family with Paris and his illegitimate family. Right. Well, <clears throat> you know, Astanax is, is, is just a little child and he's frightened. And you get that picture that would often happen if you just imagine a, a little child, a couple of years old, and, uh, you know, maybe if, if, if they were just sitting around in the uh, the dining room and uh, Hector has uh, got him in the rocking chair or something like that to use uh, our kind of... Uh, images of family life, uh, the little boy would be okay. But the, this uh, outfit of a warrior is frightening. Uh, but it's also, it's, whenever Astanax is frightened by that, it is this foreshadowing, this look ahead to the fact that this whole thing is going down, that, uh, that, these, that these noble people in this case are going down uh, with the whole thing. And that there was a problem with what Troy did that is going to bring destruction on the whole, the whole of the community, and that's what's going to come up again and again. And finally, with uh, the uh, the great shield of home of, of Achilles, mm-hmm. you know that just represents this world that uh, that Achilles can bring to pass uh, with his work as a soldier. Mm-hmm. So beautiful scene, but really tragic as well. Yes, <clears throat> like even. Some of the some of the last words Hector says to his to his wife he he prays to Zeus for for his son that he would be a better man than his father, and um, he says to her Andromache, I think it's in line five seventy nine in Fagels Andromache, dear one, why so desperate? Why so much grief for me? Then he says, No man will hurl me down to death against my fate, and fate. No one alive has ever escaped it, neither brave man nor coward, I tell you. It's born with us the day that we are born. So his some of his final comforting words to his wife are, um, if I'm doomed to die, if I'm destined to die, I'll die. And there's nothing that you or, or I could do about it. Um, which raises a whole other question of the relationship between fate and Zeus's power, who's supposed to be god of the gods, who controls all things, but doesn't really control all things. Um, so that's <clears throat> that's that's another thing. One question I have been is, I mean, it, it relates to our, our some of our recent conversations we've had about of mice and men as we've uh, you've recently finished it. Um, 
and I've recently finished it again with my with my own students, my tenth graders. Like, how can a story or or a scene like this, like like how can how can a tragedy be also beautiful? Don't we typically associate like a beautiful story with like a, with a happy ending? How how can a sad or tragic ending to a story or a scene like this warm or fill our hearts with a strange kind of joy? Well, William Butler Yeats has a poem called, I think it's Easter 1916, about the Irish rebellion against the British. And it has the recurring refrain in it, and a terrible beauty was born. Mm. And that's part of the richness of literature that often it's looking into uh, looking into the abyss, which is, uh, I don't remember whose phrase that was exactly, uh, but there is beauty in that. There is beauty in seeing the dissolution of the, um, of the Karamazov family. There's, there's a beauty mm. in seeing uh, Ahab coming to his destruction. There's a beauty in all of the Shakespearean tragedies. And I don't know whether it's because it reflects and really shows us something of the world or it brings us uh, back to a Christian understanding that this whole mess down here uh, in this world is a tragedy that only God above can turn into a comedy, which means mm. that it's going to, to turn out uh, you know, happily ever after. Uh, but there, it's, there is something very uh, fulfilling about reading something that turns out tragic, even even when you're wringing your hands and saying, "No, I don't, I don't want this guy to die at the end of this story. Uh, I want him to work this out this time." And it still, it always ends the same. Uh, and yet, maybe it's just the catharsis of it. You know, the Greeks would go to these tragedies, and that uh, that we read, uh, you know, sometimes emotionless. And uh, they were just in uh, tears at the end of these stories. Mm. And maybe we've lost something because we don't get as moved by that. The, the cross of Christ is one big tragedy, I think we could say. God in flesh dies, is murdered, killed unjustly. And yet, through that tragedy becomes a comedy where humanity is saved. The divine nature united to, to, to the church, head and body. Salvation is created for mankind. And everlasting joy promised uh, to us. And we, whenever we read the Gospels and we come to the the, the crucifixion scenes we I think are are meant to weep but yet also rejoice with joy um, for what the cross accomplished for all of our many sins and I wonder if the cross in that way is woven into the fabric of humanity in a way that, that innately senses this, though we often can't explain it. I don't know. Well, I think we have a hard time living with a world if we could imagine Jesus dies on a Friday 
and that Saturday after, as we just you know describe it, is like if that's then the rest of world history, that uh, that this that this almost happened, that this uh, Messiah came to Earth, and then that's where it ends. And I think the Greeks were were always uh, groping out there for some sort of a salvation story, and in some ways Achilles is a Christ figure for them. Who is going to attempt to accomplish it? But in his own way, uh, Hector may be uh, something of a Christ figure in that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, not 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 in any way uh, divine or even the descendant of a divine being in the Greek mindset. But we're always looking for a savior, a man who is a hero, a hero who is uh, who is not going to let us down. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Old Testament kings. The a good a good one is raised up, and then he sins. Like, well, yeah. he's not the guy. Evil kings for several generations, and then oh, Josiah comes. Oh no, he's not the guy. And there's this expectation for the king who's going to come and reign righteously and never cease. And uh, he finally comes. And uh, I, I think even in Hector too, like like, like even in this, I, I I tend to think of Hector in this poem as like the hero of the heroes of the Iliad, but even then, as we'll see, he doesn't last, and neither does his offspring, as you you mentioned uh, uh, later on. But um, well, if I can spring something on you, I did not, uh, <clears throat> I didn't, uh, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but. I think it is interesting because you have the two brothers of Hector and uh, and Paris, and earlier we saw the other two brothers, uh, Agamemnon and Menelaus. This is back over in some of the earlier parts, and it's it's amazing how Homer has so many characters, and just like a really good artist, he doesn't just resort to making a bunch of stick figures who all look alike. Each one has a distinctive personality. Mm. And he starts giving these little, you know, sometimes we get this guy just as he's dying. <laughs> this little bit of person, this little bit of background into him. Like the one man is like, oh, he was really good at having at hospitality. Uh, but guess what? He's not going to have anybody over at his house anymore because he's dead. <laughs> but this goes back to uh, when uh, when Menelaus uh, uh, captures this man and the guy does the uh, that futile effort, but it's last ditch effort of, uh, you know, grabbing him by the knees, supplicating him for life. And uh, to, to spare his life, and Menelaus is there, sympathetic, just like, well, yes, okay. And here comes uh, his brother, uh, Agamemnon, who says, uh, "Nope, we don't show any mercy. They're all gonna die." And again, that's a um, that's a picture there that uh, this is not going to come out with a truce, with um, with good guys being spared on both sides. You'll have a few who escape and. Uh, Virgil liked the idea of building upon the escape of Aeneas, uh, but uh, in this particular case, it, it even, uh, at least uh, Lattimore uses the words that, uh, that Agamemnon urged justice. And mm. then uh, uh, and Menelaus, who is, always seems to be the more, one of the more kind, uh, decent, uh, noble characters, he doesn't kill him at that point. He just pushes him over toward his brother, who then just finishes him off. But, you know, what a contrast there. You've got this one set of brothers, and they're both warriors. 
And if Menelaus has a fault, or the, yeah, if Menelaus has a fault, it is that he is a bit too noble and generous in warfare. <laughs> Paris, if he has a fault, and nobody questions this, like he is just shirking his duty. Everybody's fighting for him, and he's back up there polishing his armor in his room with his uh, his this woman that he's stolen. And only when his brother shames him does he go off to war. Yeah, we um we're in my ninth grade class. I think we're in book seventeen, and we're talking about Achilles and his wife Thetis dipping uh, uh, him in, in in the river Styx when he's a baby, and all that. And they're all thinking like, well, well, is he gonna die? When's he gonna die, Mister Moore? Well, that is like he didn't die in this book. And they got really bent out of shape because of that. And uh, we talked about his death, and they said, yeah, yeah, we know he gets shot in the heel and he dies, but but who kills him? I'm like, you're not going to be happy. We'll find out next spring, but uh, Paris kills him. And all of them, about three or four of them, were like, what? Paris? That coward? And I was like, yeah, it's pretty ironic, isn't it? Like, the, the guy who we like the least in the poem ends up killing the, the guy around whom the entire poem is uh, arguably structured. Or at least his rage, and he uses a bow and arrow, which <laughs> right. is uh, which is the um, the thing of, uh, of of the lesser soldiers uh, quite often because the real men get in there face to face with spears, <laughs> and uh, Paris is off at a distance. Uh, he, he, and that's what he was doing is that he was polishing that bow when uh, when uh, his brother comes in on him. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, in and just maybe uh, a few sentences. Why? Why should we, and, and, and I say should, uh, because I think there's some objective virtues that we're seeing in, in, in Hector. Why should we admire Hector here in, in, in book six as he's um, meeting with his wife and, and young son? Well, I think we like to divide the world between uh, good guys and bad guys uh, in the sense of... Uh, we can feel better about something if we can vilify our enemies. And mm. part of what Homer is bringing out is the humanity of people on both sides. And many other writers have followed in his stead. And that realization that uh, those people on the other side, they have families at home, they, at home. They have a mother who will weep for them if they die. They have wives. They have children. And he's bringing out this personal picture of this man who represents the good parts of Troy. It, it would have been easy just to have made uh, Troy the, uh, the epitome of, of all evil, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's just a balance there. And it, it helps us just see the, the complexity of lives and the, uh, the, humane, the humanness of uh, people and humanity at its best, which is flawed, but, uh, but no doubt still uh, people who are beautiful in their own way. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's really good. Well, Ben, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you. We'll see you again next week for episode 8. Waiting my presence, my